please pray with me. And Father, now we ask that your grace and mercy would be upon us as we yet again sit at your feet to hear your word. For Lord, it is only in your word that we find peace, we have hope, and we have love. God, we pray now that you would ready our minds and make also our hearts ready to receive the life-giving hope and promises that your word provides. God, we pray that you will speak to us in a way that which we could really recognize your voice as well as be encouraged and edified by it. Oh Lord, would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, during this prolonged and at times precarious season of COVID-19, one of the most encouraging bright spots that have emerged is a growing desire of so many of wanting to help other people. Whether it be in the form of a generous form of financial assistance, dropping off a warm meal at a friend's workplace to share with their coworkers, or even simply providing a listening ear, it seems that so many are so ready to offer a heartfelt helping hand. And yet, one of the unintended and really unnecessary outcomes that came out of all of this helping is that it has caused some to feel shame and scorn because of it. How so? Well, given that we're living in a social media age where so many are so ready to post all of their good works of helping others on display for everybody to see, some of the witnesses who do see it, who may not be as well-connected or well-resourced or well-liked even, may feel that they cannot duplicate such acts of helping others because they don't have such opportunities. And as a result, they feel left out in this amazing movement of helping others to the point where they can feel they have nothing significant, nothing substantial, nothing special to offer to anybody in terms of helping. But if you are a follower of Jesus and you happen to think that way, let me tell you that that is utter nonsense because you are absolutely wrong. Because here's the thing, if you are a genuine Christian, your God has give you, given you a resource that as far as he is concerned, is the greatest means of helping others. The only thing that is required is for you to put in the time necessary to actually provide this help. And what help am I referring to? Prayer. Prayer. Specifically, praying for other people. Okay? If there is anything that any person could do at any time, is pray. Pray for other people. And yet, sadly, so many Christians today, they don't offer this help, even though it's readily available for them to offer. So many people in the church will say that prayer is one of the most important things that they could do. And yet, given their behavior, it's as if prayer is not important at all. And if you are unsure of why this contradiction occurs, Consider this very insightful quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones as he tells us, quote, Of all the activities in which the Christian engages and which are part of the Christian life, there is surely none which causes so much perplexity and raises so many problems as the activity we call prayer. Hmm. Prayer is perplexing, which means it's hard to understand. And like anything that is hard to understand, we just don't do it because we don't understand it. And so, here comes today's sermon, because it is my hope and prayer that as we talk about praying for one another, we can have a better understanding of prayer, so that by being equipped and being educated in this manner, you will be ready to offer 
what is considered the greatest help that we could give to this world that desperately needs help right now, that you can begin your life and ministry of prayer. So, with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you from today's sermon. First, we're going to talk about the prerequisite of praying for praying for one another, the prerequisite for praying for one another, the purpose of praying for one another, and then finally we're going to end it with the power to pray for one another, the prerequisite, the purpose, and finally the power to pray for one another. Let's begin with the first point, the prerequisite for praying for one another. Let's go to our verse today, verse 13 of chapter 5, where James says the following, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Okay, come on back. When you first read this verse, there's really nothing that seems to stand out, nothing that really seems to capture your, your, your mind or your heart in any way to where you can conclude that there's nothing very compelling or challenging that James is saying here. Just a simple set of standard words of encouragement that you can find scattered throughout the pages of Scripture. And so you can kind of dismissively kind of pass on by it. But as James is going to show you in just a moment, what he's saying here is very, very challenging and it's supposed to be very convicting because whether you realize it or not, he's actually trying to rebuke us in a very important way. Now, I know you hear that and you're like, rebuke? Uh, did you just read the same verse that I did, Pastor John? Because I don't sense any sense of rebuke. Where in the world do you get that? Well, let me show you. And to do so, let me first draw your attention to a passage in the Old Testament from the book of Proverbs. I want to read to you Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 to 9. Follow along as I read it. O oh God, I beg two favors from you. Let me have them before I die. First, help me never to tell a lie. And second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? And if I'm too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. Hmm. Here in this proverb, the writer is asking two things of God. He's asking first that God would not make him too rich, but he's also asking God to not make him too poor. Now, with that in mind, let's come back to verse 13 of James 5. If you compare that proverb to verse 13, you'll notice that there is a thematic similarity between both of them. You see, in both of those verses, they're talking about two contrasting of good times versus bad times, right? Times of suffering, like when you're in poverty, and times of cheerfulness, like when you're abundantly prosperous. So these two verses both have the same thematic idea of contrasting between good times versus bad times. But notice also how they're very different. The man in Proverbs is asking God to not allow him to fall into poverty or into prosperity because in both instances, he knows that he's going to forget God. God is nowhere going to be on the radar of his heart or his mind. You see, if he's too rich, he might fall under the delusion that he doesn't need God, that he's self-sufficient, and then be, therefore become a functional atheist. But yet, on the other hand, if he's too poor, he might fall under the delusion that God has abandoned him, that he's essentially an orphan, and therefore do something very foolish like steal and dishonor God by sinning against him. Okay? But notice the Christian that James is referring to in James 13. He tells us that a true Christian is someone in bad seasons or in good seasons, in times of poverty, in times of prosperity, in times of suffering, in times of cheerfulness, God will always be on their radar. God will always be present in the form of their prayers to God in those 
moments. You see, James is saying that a genuine follower of Jesus will always be inviting God into their lives in moments of hardships and in moments of joy. Right? And what's the point that James is trying to imply here? The point that he's implying is that most Christians, in spite of saying that God is important to them and God is precious to them, they're more like the person in Proverbs 30. And that is, we don't really have uh, a deep involvement of God in our lives, evidenced by the fact that we don't really pray to God when things are really, really bad, nor do we really pray to God when things are really, really good. Now you hear that and you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. Can you further explain what you mean by that? Well, let me try. Let me try this illustration with you. Try to bring to your mind two instances that represent the worst day of your life and the best day of your life. Just imagine two different scenarios that represent respectively the worst day and the best day of your life. For most people, the worst day would probably be something like the death of a loved one, a spouse, a child, a sibling, a parent. And then the best day of their life would most likely be like what I consider the best day of my life, which is my wedding day, right? Now, hold those two scenarios in mind as I ask you this question. In those two instances, who are you going to invite to be with you in that moment of either sorrow or celebration? Who are going to be part of that situation with you where you're going to ask them to come and be with you, to partake, to participate, to be present with you as you're going through these two respective things? Most likely, they're going to be people who are very, very significant, very special, people who are, who are so important, so intimate in your life. So for example, let's say a loved one of yours tragically dies. Chances are you're not going to invite the cashier at the local Dunkin' Donuts that you visit multiple times a week, right? And furthermore, you're probably not going to invite that person to come to your wedding or to attend your reception. Why? Because they simply don't represent someone who is significant enough, who is special enough, who is intimate enough with you, who is important enough to you, to where they would warrant being present and participating in those respective moments. They just don't matter. And that is essentially why most people who call themselves Christians, they don't pray in moments of sorrow, in moments of celebration, in moments of despair, in moments of celebration and honor. See, this is the rebuke that James is telling us here in verse 13. He's telling us that you and I, evidenced by our lack of prayer in those seasons, we have a very superficial relationship with God, right? It's more akin to that weekly times that we gather, whether on Sunday service, in an Oikos meeting, that is very comparable to our weekly time of talking to the cashier at the local Dunkin' Donuts. That's the extent in which we engage God. And it's very superficial, it's not deep, and it's not intimate whatsoever. We do not involve God in our lives, whether it's in the worst days of our lives or in the best days of our lives. Here's what you need to understand about prayer. Prayer is when you invite and therefore involve God to the full extent of your lives, even in the most important moments of your life, whether that be the worst day or the best day, respectively. Prayer is where you are saying, God, you need to be a part of my life because you must be that important to me. You are that important to me. And there, right there, is the prerequisite for praying for other people. If you want to pray for others, 
you must first meet this prerequisite where God is first and foremost the most significant, the most special, the most important, the most intimate relationship that you have out of all the people in your life. God must be number one. God must be the center of it all. God must be right, the person that you revolve your whole life around. That is the prerequisite required in order for you to fulfill the purpose of praying for one another. The question is, do you have it? Because if you don't, then you can't fulfill the purpose. You must have a deep, abiding, personal, intimate fellowship with God. Because when you do, then you can fulfill the true purpose of praying for one another. But what exactly is that? Well, good segues. Let me go to my next point to explain the purpose of praying for one another. Let's skip down now and read verse 14 to 16 of our passage. Follow along as I read it. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Okay, come on back. Here in these verses, James tells us one of the biggest reasons why we need to be praying for one another. And you know what that is? Sickness, illness, debilitating diseases, sickness. You know, before COVID hit, I think it's safe for me to assume that many of us really took for granted the tremendous health and prosperity, physically speaking, that we've experienced. Most of us are living in a time that our ancestors could never dreamed of, where we never had to worry about illnesses and debilitating diseases and, and, and profound sicknesses from enveloping us or our loved ones. For the most part, we have lived a very physically healthy, prosperous life. And because of that, many of us don't realize how spiritually debilitating real sickness can be. I mean, let's face it, even now with this pandemic, many people don't really feel the weight of the consequences of the physical illness that COVID-19 can have. And again, the bad thing about that is that we, we, we don't realize how spiritually dangerous it can be for our souls when we get that sick. Let me show you a story share with you a story where I came to this realization. Back when I was uh, studying to be a pastor in seminary, I had to get surgery, a surgery that was pretty invasive, which meant the recovery time was, was terrible. It was atrocious. I mean, I was in bad shape for two weeks. In fact, it was so bad that for two straight days, I was like vomiting blood. I mean, that's how bad it was. And as I was in this state of misery, a disturbing thought crept into my mind. And you know what the thought was? The thought was, you know, I haven't thought about God at all, let alone prayed to God. I haven't even pondered about God in any way. And you have to understand, that was a big deal for me back then because I was a seminary student. I was really on fire for God and my faith to where all I did was read about God. All I did was thought about God. I talked to other people about God. God was always at the forefront of my mind. And now to all of a sudden have this physical debilitating situation upon me to where I couldn't think about God, that really bothered me. It made me start to feel guilty and to the point where I started wondering, am I a genuine believer? Is God really not that important to me? Maybe my faith is crumbling. I mean, that's the kind of situation I was in. 
But yet here in our passage, James shatters that kind of doubt from ever creeping in in the context of us ever being sick. Read again to what he says in verse 14. He says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, you might be wondering, what's all this talk about praying and anointing with oil? What, what's all that about? That's kind of odd. Well, it wouldn't be so odd if you're familiar with the Old Testament. Because when you read the Old Testament scriptures, you know that there are specific instances where certain individuals are prayed over while at the same time have oil poured over them. And you know who those individuals are? They're either kings or they're either priests, specifically the high priests. Kings like David, high priests like Aaron. And in fact, speaking of Aaron, if you read in the book of Exodus, where Moses, his brother who functioned as Israel's king at the time, prayed over Aaron to be the very first high priest, he then proceeded to pour oil over his brother, right, to signify that Aaron was set apart, that Aaron was very special in the eyes of God, that Aaron had an exclusive relationship with God that no one else could match, because Aaron was the one who once a year could go in to the most holiest place on earth, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement known as Yom Kippur. Right? That's the underlying background behind this idea of praying and oil being poured on somebody. And that is essentially what James is trying to convey when he's referencing this idea of praying over a person who's sick and pouring oil over them. You see, when a person is sick, when a person is really debilitated and they are struggling with this sense of doubt that God has forsaken them, that God doesn't remember them, that God has essentially abandoned them to where they have no relationship with God, James tells us that we should pray over people in such a way to where they feel like they're an errand. They're like the high priest. They have been set apart. They have a special relationship with God. They have such a relationship with God. They have exclusive access to him in ways that nobody else can. You see, James understands that when we are sick and when we are overwhelmed, right, our faith will struggle because of it. And so he wants to make sure that as we pray for people, we do so in such a way that conveys this message. Don't doubt. Don't fear. Do not be anxious. God is by your side. You are set apart. He loves you and he is with you in a way that he's not with anybody else. And this is something that I feel we really need to grasp because whether you think you would or you wouldn't, the fact of the matter is all of us will struggle spiritually. As true as it is that all of us at some point will get sick physically, all of us at some point will doubt spiritually, okay? It doesn't matter if you've been walking with Jesus for over 30 years of your life, if you're a Bible teacher, if you're an Oikos group leader, if you're a praise team leader, if you've been to seminary, every single one of us, no matter what our physical or spiritual stature for that matter is, we will have seasons of doubt. Consider this very sobering, heartfelt confession from one of the great spiritual giants of church history, Charles Spurgeon. Listen to what he once said, quote, you will find the bravest of God's servants have their times when it is hard to hold their own, when they would be glad to creep into a mouse hole if they could there find themselves a shelter. At such seasons, it will happen that our graces will refuse to act. Like some flowers that shut up their cups when the sun is gone, so will our love and our faith shut themselves up. I have known what it is to search my heart through and through without being able to discover any spark of love to Jesus Christ in it. I and to bring my soul to the closest investigation with diligent inquiry, asking, where is my faith? If someone of the stature of a Charles Spurgeon can go through seasons of debilitating doubt, you better believe all of us 
can and we will go through that. And it's in those seasons that you need to come alongside your brothers and sisters and say, Brother, sister, I am struggling in my faith. I feel God is distant. I feel so disconnected. Can you please pray for me? Can you please plead on my behalf so that God will remember me or that I could remember God? I need you to come alongside me and help me in my time of weakness and pray for me on my behalf. Can you please pray for me? And conversely, when you see a fellow brother or sister in Christ, they're overwhelmed, they're struggling, and they feel that they are barely hanging on to their faith, that is when you need to tell them, hey, I am praying for you, and in fact, I will pray for you right now. Let's pray here and now. We need to be ready to come alongside and pray for our brothers and sisters as much as we need them praying for us. The question is, NCF, are you willing and can you do this for the people around you? I know what your answer probably is, and that is, no, I'm not able to. I can't do it, Pastor. This is just impossible. And the reason why you're probably saying that is the same reason why I would probably say that. Because you're still stuck on my first point, the prerequisite for praying for one another, right? Remember that prerequisite, which means you must have a robust, deep, intimate fellowship with God. And to be honest, maybe you don't, right? I know at times I don't. And the question is, how in the world can we even attempt to help others through our prayers when we can't even meet that prerequisite? Is there something that we can turn to James for that answer? And the answer is yes, because he does provide the answer. And to tell you what that is, let me go to my final point, the power to pray for one another. Uh, let me ask you a hypothetical question. What would you do if you achieved the greatest achievement of mankind? Right? I mean, I'm talking about achievement that blows Albert Einstein out of the water, Steve Jobs out of the water, Martin Luther King Jr. out of the water, Gandhi out of the water, like Mother Teresa, like all the greatest achievers of world history. Let's say you achieve something that far exceeds their achievement, okay? What would you do after you achieve that achievement? Right? Chances are, like me, you probably do nothing. Right? You probably just sit around and just do nothing because what else could you possibly do? You, you, you just achieve the greatest accomplishment of all. There's nothing better beyond it. And so what can you do besides nothing, right? Now here's what's so interesting. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ achieved the greatest accomplishment of all. He did the greatest achievement of all. He reconciled God to man to where no longer there is wrath, no longer is there distance, no longer is there punishment, no longer is there sin, but there is forgiveness, there is righteousness, there is redemption, there is love, there is relationship. See, Jesus achieved the greatest achievement of all. Now, what do you think Jesus is doing right now after doing that thing that he did for us on the cross, rising again? What do you think he's doing right now? Do you think he's sitting on some cosmic celestial throne surrounded by the angels just enjoying the accolades of that great achievement? Actually, the Bible tells us what he's doing, and it's not that. Consider what it says here in Hebrews chapter 7. We're starting in verse 23. It reads, There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who came to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Wow. 
According to the book of Hebrews, God the Son came into the world as Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life of obedience for us. Right? He died the substitutionary death that we deserve, right, but won't. And he rose again from the dead so he could live forever. Why? So that he could pray for us. Jesus is not sitting on some throne somewhere. He's actually on his knees for you. He is interceding for every single one of you. He is praying for all of us right now. And the question is, what exactly is he praying for? Do you know? We read John 17 for the answer, starting in verse 20. This is Jesus praying the night that he was betrayed. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Wow. Jesus is currently praying that his love for the Father and the Father's love for him will become your love for the Father and the Father's love for you. In other words, Jesus is inviting all of us to share in the intimate relationship that he has with the Father and for us to experience the same level of love that he is receiving from the Father. In other words, Jesus is praying that God the Father would love you as much as he loves Jesus Christ. And do you know what? Jesus is praying this prayer because he is confident that it will be answered. Let me say that again. Jesus is praying this prayer because he is confident it will be answered. How can he be so confident? Because Jesus Christ, he himself fulfilled the prerequisite in order to pray for other people. Jesus put his father first. Jesus made sure that his father was the center of his life. Jesus made sure that God was the most important, the most intimate, the most special, the most significant person out of all the people in his life. He had God as the center of his life. Everything about his life revolved around him. Jesus met that first prerequisite in order for the purposes of his prayers to come true. This is why James says the following in verse 16 of our passage, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Did you see? James is saying because Jesus met fully the prerequisite of praying for others, he is confident that the purpose of his prayer will be fulfilled. Now, Christian, do you know what that means? It means even though right now you may feel that you don't have a strong love relationship with God, you will because Jesus prayed for it and Jesus' prayer has power because his prerequisite of praying for you was met first and foremost in the gospel. And what that means, Christian, is that you will have a growing intimate relationship with God. If you are truly are a follower of Jesus, God will ensure that your relationship with him will be deep, will be intimate, will be unique, it will be special, and it will be central. He makes that promise. All you need to do is to claim it. And as you claim it more and more by believing the gospel, all of a sudden, you find the desire. All of a sudden, you find the ability. All of a sudden, you find the means within yourself to start praying for others. And as you do, more and more do you find people being helped, truly helped by your prayers.
because I said it before and I'll say it again. The most loving thing that we could ever do for anybody else is to pray for them. Because what essentially are you asking God for when you pray for them? You're asking what Jesus was praying for in John 17. You're asking for that person to have God's love for them to equal God's love for Jesus. This is why prayer is the greatest means of helping others because you are providing the greatest source of joy and peace and hope and love of all. You're giving them Jesus Christ. You're giving them God. NCF, do you believe that? If you don't now, trust me, you will because your Jesus is praying for you now and his prayers are effective. All I'm asking you is just to sit on that, claim that in promise, in faith, and you will find that you will be able to help others that exceed any help that anyone else can provide. I hope and pray that you will have faith in that and that you will live it out. Let's do some good prayer for each other and for this world. Let's now pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. Thank you as it's a good reminder of the fact that you have equipped us with a means of providing the greatest help, the greatest blessing, and that is to pray for each other and to pray for this world. Father, um, I think it goes without saying that we are living in real desperate times where people are exceedingly in need of help, not just physical help, not just financial help, not just psychological help, but most importantly, they are spiritually in need of help. And all of these needs have the same source, and that is you, Lord. Father, we pray that as we remember that our Lord Jesus is praying for us now, let it strengthen our growing faith and deepen our relationship with you so that we ourselves will be able to meet the prerequisite of praying for others and therefore live out the plan and purposes of praying for one another. Father, may your people rise up during this occasion and be an effective help to a world that is in desperate need of it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.